Our sermon text is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Give ear to the Word of God. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, I meant to do this during the previous prayer, but let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to teach us his word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you've given it to us, that you've not left us to grope around in the dark, to, to know the way of salvation by faith in Christ. And you've also revealed to us the way that you would have us to live, to glorify you and show us our gratitude for our great salvation that you've given us in Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you that even as you tell us in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, give us grace to have that attitude as well, that we would hunger for your word at all times, not just in church on, on the Lord's day, but throughout the week that you give us a hunger to know you, a hunger to know your word. Lord, we pray that you would renew our minds and transform our lives. And as Jesus, our Lord, even said and prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Because your word is truth. Fill us with your spirit and teach us your word even today. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have been uh, for a time now going through on the first Sundays of the month the book of Psalms. And we are going to get back to that. We haven't stopped. We're over halfway through. So we're, we're planning, Lord willing, to go through the rest of them. Uh, but I thought uh, as the new year came around that it might be a good thing for us to do to spend some time on the first Sundays of the month looking at the Ten Commandments in order. Uh, we, we read them very often on the, on the first Sundays of the month, but it's always good to spend time actually thinking through these commandments and what God would have us to learn from them. Um, I think I say this maybe too often, but I, I, I think there might not be a topic on which professing Christians are more confused about or are more neglectful about than the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments in particular. You could say that the gospel itself probably ranks higher on that list. Like what are, what are more professing Christians confused about in the Bible than the gospel? That may sound odd, but I think that's probably true as well. We, we're confused about the gospel at times. Um, in some ways, I think ignorance and confusion regarding the law of God and regarding the gospel kind of go together. I think in some ways they're kind of inextricably bound up together in many ways, because and why? Why is that? Why? Why do confusion about God's law and confusion about the gospel very often go hand in hand? As I think they do. I think it is. If you get the law of God wrong, in a lot of ways, I think it's impossible to get the gospel right. And in some ways, you could even say vice versa. If you get the gospel wrong, you're not going to get the law. Right as well. It, it very well may be, among other things, the virtual absence of the law of God in the preaching and teaching of the church today that has led to much of the perceived impotence in the proclamation of the gospel in our day. Uh, John Murray, uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia years ago, uh, wrote, the, wrote the following. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth our time to hear it. Uh, John Murray writes, when the proclamation of God's law is neglected, the significance of the gospel is correspondingly reduced in our presentation and in the apprehension of men. The gospel is the gospel of salvation, 
And salvation is, first of all, salvation from sin in its guilt, defilement, and power. If our emphasis on the judgment of God upon sin is minimal, correspondingly minimal will be our esteem of salvation and of the Savior. One sometimes sometimes wonders whether the faith in Christ which is demanded of men in the presentation of the claims of Christ can have any real content in view of the beggarly conception of the gravity of sin which is presented as its presupposition and concomitant. Faith in Christ, he says, does not arise in a vacuum. It arises in the context of conviction of sin and it is to the creation of that conviction that the ministry of the judgment ministers. If I can boil that down or summarize it, if people don't know God's law, don't know the law they have broken, don't know the seriousness of breaking that law and the wrath of God that abides on them for it, how will they ever understand and grasp the greatness of the gospel? It's like we spend we spend all of our time, and with good reason, giving the good news that we never get around to giving them the bad news first. I think that's a, a, a something that we see more and more in our day. There's very little preaching and teaching on God's law. We we are kind of scared away from it in some ways. We you know we don't want to be legalistic. We we think it's ungracious to do so. It's the God's law is not contrary to his grace. God's law is, is an expression of his holy character, including his grace in many ways. You know, you think about the preaching of the apostles on the day of Pentecost, for example, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the hearers of Peter and the other apostles were so convicted of their sin. They were so convicted of their guilt before God. In fact, the, the verse, verse 37 of Acts 2 says they were, they were cut to the heart. It's quite the phrase. They were cut to the heart by what they heard. How often does that happen today? How often does it happen to us today in the church? They were cut to the heart, and what did they say? They said, brothers, what shall we do? Acts 2, 37. They were really asking. What what were they asking? They were asking the very same thing that the Philippian jailer asked later on in Acts 16 to Paul and Silas. Remember what he said after all the things that happened? Remember the earthquake and he thought they all left? He was getting ready to kill himself for failing in his duty and, and Paul and Silas stopped him and said, we're all still here. And what does he say? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Conviction of sin, the grasp of the glory of the gospel leads to those questions. When someone is cut to the heart, they say, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? In our day, with a lack of preaching on God's law and the corresponding lack of conviction of sin, one may be far more likely to hear someone say instead of what must I do to be saved is probably why do I need to be saved in the first place? I think it was R.C. Sproul one time that either was asked this uh, or I remember him talking about it. Somebody said to him, saved from what? If they don't know what they're being saved from, they're not going to think much of the gospel of salvation To begin with, are they? Ignorance of God's law, especially the Ten Commandments themselves, which are a summary of God's moral law, has thankfully not always been as prevalent uh, in the past as it is and seems to be in our own day. You might know, I think I've probably mentioned this before, 
many of the catechisms and confessions of faith that came out of the 16th century Reformation and the century after that, the heirs of the theological heirs of the reformers, what they often focused on was three things. They might have added other things as well, but they, they almost always focused on three simple things. And what, what are those things? They focused on the Apostles' Creed, which we, have, uh, we often recite together on the first Sunday of the month. The Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Now, why? Why of all the things that the Reformers and others could focus on in teaching the basics of the faith, why those three things? Well, I think it's, the answer is simple. The Apostles' Creed, what is it about? The Apostles' Creed teaches you what you are to believe as a Christian, the basics of the Christian faith. The Ten Commandments are the essentials of how we are to live in response to God's grace. And thirdly, the Lord's Prayer is a summary, a pattern, to teach us how to approach God in prayer. What does a new Christian need more than that? What does a young Christian need, or any Christian really, need more than those three things to be established in a right understanding of the Christian faith and life and of worship and prayer than those three things? And that is why you'll see those things consistently focused on in a lot of the catechisms and confessions of the Christian of the Christian church. So if you're a new believer somehow, if you've been con converted recently, or if you're a young believer, young in the faith, either way, uh, you know, what, what do you need more than the study of those three things? I would say in addition to your regular Bible reading, make a study of those three things uh, your New Year's resolution to come to know what God would have you believe, how he would have you to live, and how we, how we should pray. You know, we we might, I think many of us think that we just know those things. We just somehow think we naturally, inherently, intuitively, we know what we should believe. Is that really true? Do any of us know the truth outside of God's word? No, we, we aren't born with a knowledge of God's word. Do, do any of us know uh, what God's will is? Do we really know how God would have us to live? Or do we assume, well, whatever way I'm living God probably likes that just fine. Do we, do we assume that God likes or, or prefers what we like? I think we often do think that way. And lastly, I don't think any of us would say that, oh, for sure we know how to pray, but we really don't. When you look at the, at the Lord's Prayer, we just prayed it together, we just recited it together, how many of our prayers start with uh, the hallowing of God's name? Is, is God's name being hallowed or glorified first in our prayers? It's, sometimes it's not in mine, I, I admit. Is God's kingdom much in our prayer life? It should be if we're following the Lord's prayer. So these three things are something that we should spend time considering. So this morning I'd like us to look at the, at the first commandment briefly. We're going to look at the meaning of it. What does it mean to have no other gods before God? Look again at verse 3. It says very simply, you shall have no other gods before me. Now notice the first commandment, uh, really the first four commandments, deals with our relationship with God. It should be instructive for you and I that this is where the Ten Commandments begin. Of all the places, of all the commands God could give to start the Ten Commandments with, this is the one he chose to be first. In his book, The Ten Commandments, on the same subject, the great Puritan writer Thomas Watson writes this. <coughs> He says, this may well lead the van and be set in the front of all the commandments because it is the foundation of all true religion. 
It is the foundation of all true religion. The sum of this commandment is that we should sanctify God in our hearts and give him a precedence above all created beings. Just like the Lord's Prayer starts the same way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In a very similar way, the first commandment teaches us uh, that God comes first in our affections, in our lives, in our priorities. We should give him, as Watson says, precedence above all things. If you were to rank the commandments in order of their importance as far as you think of them on a common everyday basis, how far up or down in the list would you rank the first commandment? And what I mean by that is, how often do you think about it? How often, when you, when you see it being violated by someone, uh, as opposed to the other ones, are you greatly offended? You know, in our day of social media, which is often a, not the greatest thing in the world to be spending too much time in, you know, you see videos constantly. What's the old thing they say about the network news? If it bleeds, it leads. You see videos on social media of violence, of murders, of, of attacks all the time. And, it, you know, if, if you have any kind of sensitivity of heart, I'm sure you are offended by them. You know, if it's a place you used to live, you're like, oh, what happened to my old hometown? What happened to the city I used to go to all the time? Look at it. We should be offended by those things. But how often are we offended but that people with blatant, with, you know, with impunity have other gods before God and worship false gods, the gods of the nations, which are idols, as we looked at this morning from Psalm 96. Would we put the commandment against murder or the commandment against adultery above having other gods before God? I think in our gut, sometimes that's kind of how we react. Those are heinous, scandalous, awful sins. So is the breaking of the first commandment. In many ways, you could say it was that it's worse. Murder or adultery might strike you as bigger sins, quote-unquote, but what about breaking the first commandment? Do you see it as a heinous offense and a serious sin? It should, because God puts it here first for a very good reason, to show us its importance. Has it ever occurred to you that breaking the first commandment is a hell-worthy offense? It's a hell-worthy offense. You know, we could easily ask that of any of the first four commandments. You know, we, we at, uh, at our presbytery meeting, sometimes we have to have examinations for candidates for ministry, and we ask them, you know, a lot of theological hard questions. We give them a cigarette and a blindfold and start firing away at them. And I remember when I had mine, and it is a stressful time, and sometimes your brain locks up and you don't know what to say. But very often we ask, we are bound to ask if any of the candidates have what we sometimes call exceptions or scruples against the teaching of the Westminster Standards. And the one that is most often, more than anything else, take an exception, to, 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 to use that phrase too, is the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. They say, well... We, we don't think it really excludes recreation. That's usually what they'll, they'll get at. It, it, it's abiding, but you can still do what you want on Sundays. Um, and I often think to ask, do you believe breaking the Sabbath is a hell-worthy offense? Do you preach the fourth commandment as if it were? Because it's part of God's moral will. It's something we should take very seriously. Um, even think about the first commandment, though. If you had never sinned, and this isn't possible, let's say that you had never once transgressed 
any of the other nine commandments in any way, not even in your mind, not even in your heart. You've never lusted. You've never hated. You've never had a selfish thought, anything. But you broke the first commandment. What would you what would you think? You probably think, you know, in some ways you might be not all the way wrong. I've done pretty well. You know, I look at everybody else. They're all lusting and, and hating. And I'm, all I've done is broke the first one. It'd be just as worthy of hell if you just broke that that one and that one only and had other gods before the one true and living God. It will be a sin infinitely worthy of an eternity in hell. That's how serious this commandment and the violation of it is. How many people walk this earth who have deceived themselves into thinking that they are, to use the phrase you often hear, basically good moral people, but who violate this commandment with impunity every single day by putting other things and even false gods in the place of God, not giving God, God alone the glory, love and worship that are due unto him alone. How many of the cults that we think of in our day? In fact, I think of at least one of the major cults that their main thing is family values and being good moral people. But they're idolaters and they don't worship the one true and living God. In fact, part of their theology is that they tell you that you're going to be a God someday. They believe in a multitude of gods. They are polytheists of the worst kind. And we think, oh, they're good moral people, good family values. No, they're not. That is a wicked thing to worship something other than the one true and living God. This commandment comes first also shows us that true morality or ethics starts with one's relationship to God. True morality or ethics starts with how we treat God. Doing what's right starts with doing what is right with regard to God himself. Now, what does it mean to have other gods, small g, before God? We better make sure we have that, have that straight. It means to trust, love, worship, and serve anything other than God. It's to give something else other than God, whether it be a false God or even a material thing, uh, your first allegiance instead of God. Or to put it in any way in competition with your allegiance to God. The Shorter Catechism has questions on the Ten Commandments. And question 47 says this, what is forbidden in the first commandment? Answer, the first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying of the true God as God and our God. And the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due unto him alone. How many millions of souls break the first commandment by denying God and failing to worship him as God? How many millions more do so by worshiping and serving other false gods? It's rampant. You might even say that that is the explanation for the condition of our country right now. We think of the symptom. We think of the violence and all these other things, the perversions. But probably those things started because we're worshiping other gods and putting other things in the place of God, and even putting other things in place of God on his day. How many do all this while walking on the brink of an eternity without God? It's a frightening thing to think about. Now, this having other gods before God can be done in a couple ways. It can be done in a literal way through false religion and worshiping false gods. Isaiah 44, 6 says this. There God says, I am the first and I am the last. And then he says, besides me, there is no God. God is saying, you know, suppose, like, I have looked around, it's just me. 
There's no other God but me, God says. If God is the only true God, then to worship anyone or anything else is to, give, is to have another God, even if it's a false one, to have them before him. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In other words, people were praising and worshiping carved idols, and God's saying, no, I, I, I'm not the sharing kind in that regard. You don't get to give my worship and my praise to things you made. And who is he talking to? His own people there. He's rebuking Israel and Judah for their sin of idolatry and, and idolatry and having other gods before him are so mutually bound up together that almost to be identical in some regard. Having other gods before God can also be done in kind of a non-religious way, can it? Matthew 6.24, the Lord Jesus Christ says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. That might be the most common form of having other gods before God that we have seen in our land today. People put possessions and money and things in the place of God. And what does that look like? It means they have a higher priority. When push comes to shove, which way do they go? It's a, it's a cruel idol to serve. Um, you know, we, we talk about having money. Sometimes it seems like money has us. And that is what, what Christ is teaching here. Uh, who, who's the master? When you have money, who do you think the master is? The more money you have, the more you think you're the master. But what does Jesus say? No, no, no. You're serving it. You're not the master. The money is. And you can only serve one or the other, God or money. Money or possessions can be a false god if it takes priority in your life. In fact, serving money, again, is probably the most common form. Uh, it's a non-religious form, but a, the most common form of false religion or idolatry in this world. That's why Paul tells us, it may sound like a strange thing to say, but in Colossians 3.5, Paul says that covetousness or greed is what? Idolatry. When you hear that, does it make you kind of sit back in your chair and say, what? Paul, Paul says, no, that's what it is. Greed or covetousness is idolatry. It's wanting that in the place of or more than we want God himself. The first commandment teaches us that it is our duty to know the one true and living God, our creator, our redeemer, and to acknowledge him alone by trusting, loving, worshiping, and serving him above all Else. Well, the last but not least, what are the motives and what are the reasons why we ought to obey the first commandment? Have you ever thought about that? Why should I obey God's commands? In particular, why are we told to obey the first commandment? I have to admit this morning, uh, due to time, obviously we're, we're going to be just kind of scratching the surface here, but that we'll, we'll list a few things and hopefully we'll find that to be helpful and edifying um, Exodus 20 verses 1 to 2 I've mentioned sometimes it's called the preface to the Ten Commandments in, in verses 1 and 2 of our text we are given a number uh, of reasons why we should obey all the commandments but, it's, but in particular I think it also applies to the first look again at verses 1 and 2 it says and God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery so here God gives us, in those two verses, really in verse 2, at least three reasons why we should obey his law 
and really three reasons why we should obey the first commandment. Uh, and we've already seen from the passages in Isaiah 42 and 44, the first reason and the most obvious reason, at least it should be obvious, is that we are to have no other gods before God because there's no such thing as another God. He is the only true and living God. He says in verse 3, what does it say there? The first thing he says is, I am the Lord. He's God and other things are not. The idea that all religions are equally valid or true is simply nonsense. Worse than that, it's blasphemy. It's an insult to God. It's not only silly and wrong, it's evil. Shorter Catechism question 5 says, Are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and true God, simple and to the point. There's only one God, and so we should worship him alone. Because there's only one true and living God, we should worship and serve him and nothing else and no one else. And to do otherwise is an insult to the majesty of our creator and our redeemer. Atheism, unbelief, and false religion are all likewise affronts to the majesty of our God. And they are violations of the first commandment. It's not a small sin in the eyes of God. How could it be? For him to be the only God and yet people worship things of their own creation. The second reason God gives us there in verse 3 that we should worship him and not have any other gods before him is that he's not just God. That should be enough. He's not just the only God, which should be enough. He's also, if you're in Christ, he's your God. He's our God. He says, I am the Lord, what? Your God. In fact, he mentions that a number of times throughout the Ten Commandments as if to make the point over and over again. Why do we obey God? Because he's God and because he's our God if we are in covenant with him in Christ. If, if we are in Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with the one true and living God, and that is to be a great motivation for us against having any other God before him. You know, uh, I... We're having the Lord's Supper this morning uh, after the sermon, uh, obviously. And one of the things I, I won't say I struggle to do it, but you know, every, every, every time we have the Lord's Supper, I say to myself, okay, how do I tie the sermon text into the Lord's Supper? Well, because this is about the gospel, that should never really be that hard, should it? But one of the things this should remind us of is, what does Jesus say when he institutes the Lord's Supper? This is the blood of the new covenant you know, that it is shed for our salvation. It's, it's, it's a covenant meal. It's a reminder that we are God's covenant people in Christ. And so, among other things, one of the applications of that is, as we're seeing this morning, we should have no other gods before him. What other God is there? There is no other God. And also, that beyond that, Christ, the Son of God, shed his blood for our salvation. What among the false gods of the nations? Who, what among them can say they've done that? None of them can, except Christ alone, the one true and living God. It's for this reason in the, in the Old Testament that compromise with false gods, the gods of the nations, the idols of the Gentiles, is so often compared to spiritual adultery. It's common, it's, it's also written in the New Testament. But idolatry to God was perceived as adultery against God. Why? Because we're in a covenant relationship with him. We often speak of marriage as a covenant, and it is. And it's a creation ordinance that God has put in place for our good. You know, if, if you are married, the idea of, of your spouse committing adultery against you is a, a heinous, angering, I don't even know, what, I, I fail at the words, 
you would be very angry, to, to say the least. It's not even the right way to put it. You'd probably be furious because why? You're in covenant with them, and they are in covenant with you. Well, think about how God feels, so to speak. He tells us in the Old Testament, he calls the people adulterers. Why? We're having other gods before him. Why? Because they are espoused to him. What is the church called in the New Testament? The bride of Christ. That's why these things go together the way that they do. Last but not least, the third reason that Exodus 20 verse 2 holds out before us, it holds forth to us as a reason for obeying this, this commandment, is the great grace of God in the redemption and salvation of his people. That's the great, that's the great motive for obeying this and all the other commandments as well. In verse 3 he says, I am the Lord, there's one, I am the Lord your God, there's two, and then the last thing it says there, what is the one true living God, our God done? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the great salvation event of the Old Testament, is what the Exodus really is. It's the great picture of our deliverance from, from sin. They were enslaved to Egypt. We, outside of Christ, are enslaved to sin. And Christ came and delivered us from, from that. It's because Christ has saved us by his grace that we are to obey his commandments, even especially the commandment against having other gods before him. Now, many see this kind of talk, this, this, this uh, call to obey God's commandments, many see this as somehow being contrary to God's grace. Nothing can be further from the truth. Some people think that if grace and salvation are really free and really gracious, that we should have no need to obey God's law. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is, are the Ten Commandments legalistic? Did God put them there for some strange reason and now we are to neglect and, and, and disregard them? No. Many who are antinomians in many ways, what they do is they, they seek to turn the grace of God into a license to sin. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul argues against the same idea in Romans chapter 6. Well, if, if grace abounds where sin abounds, why don't we just sin the more that grace may abound? And what does Paul say? By no means, or God forbid, how can we who have died to sin, he says, continue to live in it? What's the implication? You can't. You won't if you're a believer. You, you sin, the power of sin has been broken. You're no longer a slave to sin if you were in Christ by faith. Our salvation from sin by faith in Christ does not, it does not free us from the obligation to obey God's law. It frees us from the curse for having broken it. It frees us from the law as a means, which it never is, as a means, trying to use it as a means of salvation. It frees us from the curse for having broken God's law. The Confession of Faith 19.5 says this. I think we need to hear this more than once or twice uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, Confession of Faith 19.5 says, the moral law, that's the Ten, Ten Commandments, the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others. In other words, Christians. Uh, it, it, it binds all justified persons as well as others to the obedience of it, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. In other words, it's God's law. We serve God. We, we don't disregard the commandments of our God. What does Jesus say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? 
And here's the last thing. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. I'll, I'll read that again. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. What the confession is saying there, and I believe they are completely right in, in, in scripture, uh, scriptural in what they're saying is, the gospel of Christ that saves you from your sin uh, doesn't give you less reason to obey God's law. The gospel gives you more reason to obey God's law. In fact, you couldn't obey God's law in any real way before you came to Christ. It, you certainly weren't doing it, and I wasn't doing it outside of Christ in such a way as to, as to, to be for God's own benefit and glory. It was for our benefit. We were seeking to justify ourselves by it, which doesn't glorify Christ at all. But in the gospel, Christ actually strengthens our obligation to obey. And you could say by his spirit, finally enables us to obey God from the heart Amen. for the first time. Amen. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ, rightly understood, gives you more reason, not less, to obey God's commands, even from the heart. And I think maybe... Matthew 28, 20 should have been a clue in the, the Great Commission. What does it say we are to do? Go, therefore, into all the nations and, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And then what does it say? And teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Amen. It's part of, our, part of the Great Commission is teaching converts to obey Christ. We do not obey in order to be saved. We do not obey God's commands in order to be saved. Rather, we are saved by God, by his grace, so that we might then obey God out of gratitude for the salvation that is ours by grace uh, in Christ alone. Obedience is our response to God's grace, and it's always been that way. It's always been that way. Even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, it's that way. In other words, even during the time of Moses, even during the Mosaic Covenant, grace was the motive for obedience. He doesn't say, and I know I say this a lot, but I think it bears repeating. What he doesn't say is this. He doesn't say, no other gods before me. Don't, I'm, I'm summarizing them, right? Don't commit idolatry. Uh, don't take my name in vain. Uh, don't, you know, don't, don't forget to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Don't, uh, you know, honor your father and mother, all the commandments. He doesn't say, do all that. And then if you do all that, I'll rescue you from slavery in Egypt. They're given in, in, ex, in, in Exodus 20. The Passover is in Exodus, what, 12. God redeems them, rescues them, gets them out of Egypt, and then he gives them his law. We turn it on its head, naturally. We say, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, then maybe God will save me. Then God's up. no. No, in fact, and God doesn't even give it that way. Even, with, even under Moses, grace was the motive for obedience. There's one other reason for obedience to this commandment given in our text, and it's found in verse 3. There God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the commandment, right? But do you see that there's actually a reason in that commandment for obeying that commandment? You might be saying, you know, Pastor, I think you're, you're missing something here. I'm not seeing where you're getting this from. Uh, where is the other reason there? It's found in the very last two words in our English translations of the commandment. The words, what are they? Before me. No other gods, what? 
before. He could have just said, no other gods. And that would have been fine, right? He says, he strengthens, he says, no other gods before me. Joel Beakey helps to make this clear when he says the following. He writes, the phrase translated as before me does not refer to giving other gods a higher priority than the Lord, but it means to my face or in my sight. In other words, which just makes all the sense in the world. God is not here saying, you can have other gods, just keep me first. Right? No. No, of course he's not saying that. He's not saying, well, as long as I'm first, it's okay. And if you want to have Buddha on the side, that's what Israel did. If That's really what the sin of the Israelites was and the sins of Judah were that, that led to their captivity was they had other gods in addition to. They never would have probably said, well, they probably would have said, well, of course Yahweh's first. The Lord's first, but, you know, these other gods, they're just kind of helping out. You know, God, God needs a little bit of help because, you know, we're not doing so well and we've got these Assyrians and Babylonians barreling down on us, so... We figure maybe God's a little too busy, so we kind of spread things around a little bit. We went to the Egyptians, we went to these other gods, and they're just kind of, you know, kind of uh, helping God out and uh, kind of substituting or, or helping to make up what's what's lacking. No, he says it's these words mean to my face or in my sight. In other words, before my face. That's literally what it says. You shall have there shall be to you no other gods before my face. I don't want to see it. And he sees everything, doesn't he? That's the whole point. Shorter Catechism 48 makes this very clear as well. Shorter Catechism 48 says, what are we specially taught in these words, quote, before me in the first commandment? So that the catechism actually interprets those two words for us. It says, these words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who sees all things takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. That's what it means. God is saying, don't do it in front of me. And everything's in front of him. He sees everything. So here we see that a right consideration of the omnipresence, the omniscience and providence of God should be a motivation to us in keeping this commandment and the rest of them as well. Another way of putting that would be to say the fear of God should serve as a check to restrain us from this sin. When we are tempted to have another God before God in any way, we should say, God sees this. God is very much aware of this and it displeases him. For God sees everything and he takes notice of this sin and every other sin and is greatly displeased by it. Does this help you as a believer to keep your steps from sin? Does it make you think and even check your inward sins of the lust of the heart and of the mind to know that God sees what no one else can see. You know, we, we all think things that, you know, I, I say this from time to time. We all think things that if we all could read each other's minds, nobody would sit together in church. You'd be like, oh, my goodness. Look, you know, it's a good thing we can't read minds. But God sees everything. And we can fool each other. We can't fool God. We can't play games with God. Hebrews 14 said, 4.13 says, Nothing is hidden from God's sight. It's all laid bare uh, before the one to whom we must give an account. God sees even the sins of our hearts and minds. Proverbs 16.6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And then it says, And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Part of the fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement of his providence. Part of the fear of the Lord 
is an acknowledgement of God's omnipresence and omniscience. That he's, he's everywhere and he knows and sees all things, even the sins of our heart and mind. So let the fear of God turn us away from evil, even as that proverb says. Well, in conclusion, let us examine ourselves and, and look at our hearts concerning these things. We should pray along with, with David himself in Psalm 139, 23 to 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says, right? So when we, if we're going to search our hearts, what do we have to do? Ask God to help. God is the one who really searches the heart. Ask God to help us do just that. So I'll just ask this morning, are there ways that you are having other gods in your life, in the sight of God? Covetousness. You know, we just had Christmas. In some ways, you know, when, when you're a kid, when I was a kid, I remember I was always thankful for the things I got. I was always amazed by the things my mom was somehow able to, I mean Santa, was able to bring and put under the tree that I wanted. I thought, there's no way that's going to happen. And they'd come. But then what happened? The next school day or the next time you see your friends, they got that one toy that, oh, man, that would have made it a really great, it's like covetousness already. Uh, is, are, we, are we committing covetousness in the sight of God in such a way, committing idolatry? Are you serving God? Are you trying to serve God and money? It can't be both. If our salvation in Jesus Christ is to be a reason for and motivation to obey this commandment as well as the others, there can be no doubt that you and I in the new year and always need to think more on and think much on the cross of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. It's taught in Exodus 20, verse 2, isn't it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, Jesus is the, is the Lord our God who brought us out of slavery to sin and out of death and hell. The more we think of that, the more we dwell on that and, and meditate upon those things and have those things fill our hearts and thoughts, the more we will be motivated to obey God's command and have no other God before him. So let a growing grasp of God's love for us in Jesus Christ lead us to grow in our love for him. As the Bible says, we love, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. We should think about that more and more. First John 4.19 And may the growing love for God lead us not to have any other gods before him and rather to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts more and more in all things. To God be the glory. Amen.